So I'll do a little bit of review and then uh, jump in to the new. The title, <coughs> the title of this week's Dharma talk is Loving Our Shadow Lover. And it's uh, the archetype of the lover part two. Which for those of you that were not here last week, uh, we talked about what it means, what the spiritual archetype of lover energy is on the path. And uh, in brief, to say that the energy, the lover energy, is a part of us that we all touch at times, whether it's out in nature or when we feel the sense of beauty overwhelming us and feeling a part of it all are with someone we love or listening to music and just feeling like we're just becoming uh, the universe just we just belong that's lover energy and uh, when it's in its fully manifested form the lover intuits oneness really senses that that belonging that sense of communion with all of the world and it's unconditional it's not just uh, I love this person and this person then I don't know the rest of those guys too well and I really don't like you know it's not like that it's an unconditional appreciation uh, where out of that intuition of oneness there's a sense of really commitment and and longing to sense in daily life everywhere that that experience of sacredness that any life form in some ways embodying that basic goodness and aliveness that is universal the lover energy is a source of true joy of poetry it's life-giving and the Buddhist word that most approximates it would be bodhicitta which you've heard before here this the the awakened heart and um, that much of our practice has to do with intentional cultivation of this open-heartedness. And even if it's not intentional, the very practice of mindfulness, of moment-to-moment connecting with what's happening opens our hearts anyway. So that's lover energy in its enlightened form. And what most of us notice is that we intuit we have that capacity for open-heartedness and yet we realize day by day we constantly get snagged into our conditioning whereby our love is intermixed with a blend of fear and craving or grasping so the shadow side of the lover it's the same basic energy of kind of longing to commune but the shadow side is when that longing ends up either attaching itself to certain people, places, things, in which case we try to control our world so that the people that make us feel more whole will act the right way. It comes out of a sense of separation and fear, right? So there's one side, the shadow energy, which attaches itself and grasps and clings, and and then there's the other side, which out of fear of the intensity of this longing for eros, pushes it under. And then that that pull of the shadow lover is repressed, has a sense of being flat or depressed or dead or shut off. And frequently, for many of us, we have both. We go back and forth. We can feel very enlivened and grasping and wanting and then very shut down. So last week, I described that and then described how by paying attention 
in a mindful way and in a compassionate way to the shadow side, we really open ourselves up to the purity of bodhicitta. Well, in the days after giving that talk, I got more phone calls and feedback and questions than after most talks. (laughs) And I just wanted to give you a bit of a flavor of that because a number of people found it really disturbing. They were they were glad for the talk, but it put what it put them in touch with was just how real the shadow side is and how much it stops us from feeling really connected. The basic theme of the phone calls and some meetings I had with people was a sense of, I've never really had an intimate relationship in my whole life, that feeling, that there hasn't been any real pure experience of loving. It's always been contaminated. Here are a few of the flavors. One flavor was a sense of taking a good look at the shadow makes me depressed. Like what? There's no hope. I'm so snagged in uh, avoiding and fearing intimacy and the fears of rejection that, you know, shut down, shut down. That was one flavor. One flavor was very severe self-judgment. Um, you know, I am so self-absorbed or so self-pitying or so insensitive to the people around me that, you know, I'm just a a loser in terms of this love stuff, you know. That was another flavor. Another was grief. Simply, wow, being caught in grasping out, out of a sense of incompleteness or pushing away or controlling has kept me from really being with the beings of my life. So there's a sense of the moments passing by and not really having lived and loved fully. And then the fourth area that uh, came out was, was very basic fear of, okay, so the way to get through the shadow is to open to it and fear, feel it fully and play the edge and take risks and be vulnerable. And if I try to do that, I'll be rejected or I'll be suffocated or in some way I'll be wounded. So, <laughs> that was, there was a lot. And in fact, many people that I talked to, it didn't get beyond that. What they became aware of was just how disturbing it was to feel the shadow side of the lover energy and not the potential or the opportunities that were built into that realization. So I thought what we do tonight is kind of lean into that next area, you know, how can we make use of this recognition of the shadow side? The Buddha described it as suffering when we encounter what's difficult, and we all encounter encounter difficulty, we all, everybody that's embodied encounters this, and then we add on something, like judging it, pushing it away, trying to control it, trying to get rid of it. He said, pain's a given, suffering is optional, but we do it, you know, we add on. And this is what happens, we layer, you know, what's uncomfortable with more judgment. Struggling with intimacy, feeling that we have a shadow, is a given for everyone I know, including myself, and yet we really don't like ourselves for it. Rilke says this, For one human being to love another, 
This is the most difficult of all our tasks, the work for which all other work is but preparation. It is a great exacting claim upon us, something that chooses us out and calls us to vast things. If we have fear in our bodies, if we have longings or needs, we'll bring them into any relationship that we're in and it'll create tangles. Controlling, avoiding, grasping, that's what happens. A metaphor that some people find useful is that we intuit our loving hearts. We intuit the gold, the purity of our love. We all know that we have that capacity to really love deeply in a very wholehearted way. But we also repeatedly discover that we don't have access to it very often. (laughs) Does that make sense? We know it's there, but we don't have this access. And it's been described as this, that, that the gold, the purity, is still embedded in the iron ore of our conditioning. That all our conditioning to fear and resist or grasp is, is there, and the gold is buried in it. But we need to go through a refining process in a way that's one way of describing spiritual practices, this kind of alchemy whereby we encounter the conditioning and by being with it in a wakeful, caring way, we extract the gold, the pure energy, essence, love that's that's woven through. So mindfulness, the cultivation of the heart, is this purification whereby we extract the gold. And the question is really, how does this happen? What, what are the particulars? What are the ways that we can embrace the shadow lover, face this conditioning so that we really can connect with the purity of our hearts? What I'd like to do is read you a myth. And at, before I do, just to say that as with all myths, as you listen, Listen in the way that knows that all the characters are part of all of us. That whether it's male or female or kind-hearted or mean-spirited, the qualities that you hear about in this, that they're all, to one degree or another, within us. This is the myth of Sir Gawain and the Loathly Lady. So once on an adventure, King Arthur was out for some cause of good, and he encountered a knight with magical powers who put a spell on King Arthur, left him absolutely powerless, and all he could do was say, well, what what would you of me? He gasped that to the knight, and the knight decided that rather than use his magical powers to kill Arthur and take his kingdom, he would give him a chance to have his life and freedom. His name was the Knight of Tarn Wallathan, and he offers Arthur his life and freedom if he returns in seven days' time on New Year's Day with the answer to the question, what is it that all women most desire? Okay? Think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Filled with shame and rage but helpless to do anything other than agree, Arthur made the bargain and rode off. That entire week he wandered the land posing the question to every woman he met, whether a girl herding geese 
our great lady, and dutifully writing down their answers, knowing all the while that none that were given to him rang true. None really were the essence. And so on the morning of New Year's Day, with a heavy heart, he turned his horse in the direction of the knight's castle, his one chance for life having eluded him, knowing now that he must submit and die at the knight's hand. Not far from the knight's castle, as he rode chin on breast through a dark thicket, Arthur heard a woman's voice, sweet and soft, calling out to him, Now God's greeting to you, my lord King Arthur. God save and keep you. He turned and saw a woman in vivid scarlet gown, the color of holy berries, sitting on a mound of earth beside the road between an oak tree and a holly tree. At the sight of her, shock ran through the king, for in the instant between hearing and seeing, he had expected the owner of the soft voice to be fair. And she was the most hideous creature he had ever seen, with a piteous nightmare face that he could scarcely bear to look upon, sprouting a long wart-covered nose bent to one side and a long hairy chin bent to the other. She had only one eye, and that set deep under her jutting brow. Her mouth was no more than a shapeless gash. Her hair hung in gray, twisted locks, and her hands were like brown claws, though the jewels that sparkled on her fingers were fine enough for the queen herself. In his amazement, Arthur is struck dumb and has to be reminded by her of his code of chivalry and how a knight is to comport himself in the presence of a lady. She mysteriously knows what errand he is on. She knows that he has asked many women what it is that all women most desire and that all have given him answers and not one the right answer. She then informs the astonished king that she and she alone knows the answer he is seeking and that for her to tell him, he will have to swear a solemn oath that he will grant her whatever she asks of him in exchange. To this he readily agrees. She beckons him to bend his ear to her lips and whispers into it the answer he is looking for so that not even the trees may hear. The moment he heard it, Arthur knew in his very soul that it was the true answer. He caught his breath in laughter, for it was such a simple answer after all. The answer that he was given to the question, what is it that all women most desire, was sovereignty. Arthur asked what she would have in return, but the lady refused to say until he had tested the answer on the night of Tarnwallathan. So Arthur went off gave the true answer to the knight, and with it won his freedom. He then made his way back to the spot where the loathly lady was waiting for him. Upon his return, the reward, the Dame Ragnall, for that was the lady's name, asked of the king, was that he bring to her from his court one of his own knights of the round table, brave and courteous and good to look upon, and take her as his loving wife. Arthur, staggered and repulsed by this inconceivable request, has to be reminded that he owes his life to her and has made a knightly and kingly promise in exchange for her help. Of course, for Arthur to assign the task to someone would be to disrespect the sovereignty of one of his own knights. The choice must be made freely. When Arthur returned to court and told the full story of his week's adventure to the astonished gathering of knights, his nephew, Sir Gawain, out of loyalty to his uncle the king and out of his own goodness, offered to marry the lady himself. Arthur, ashamed and heavy-hearted, would not let Gawain make the vow without seeing her first. 
So the knights rode out in the company the next morning to the woods, and after some time they caught glimpse of the scarlet through the trees. Sir Kay and the other knights were sickened by the sight of Lady Ragnall, and some were even insulting to her face. Others turned away in pity or busied themselves with their horses. But Sir Gawain looked steadily at the lady. Something in her pathetic pride and the way she lifted her hideous head caused him to think of a deer with the hounds about it. Something in the depth of her bleared gaze reached him like a cry for help. He glared about him at his fellow knights. Nay now, why these sideways looks and troubled faces and ill manners? The matter was never in doubt. Did I not last night tell the king that I would marry this lady? And marry her I will, if she will have me. And so saying, he jumped down from his horse and knelt before her, saying, My lady Ragnall, will you take me for your husband? The lady looked at him for a moment out of her one eye, and then she said in a voice so surprisingly sweet, Not you too, Sir Gawain, surely you jest like the others. I was never further from jesting in my life, he protested. She tried then to dissuade him. Thank, think you, before it is too late, will you indeed wed one as misshapen and old as I? What sort of wife should I be for the king's own nephew? What will Queen Guinevere and her lady say when you bring such a bride to court? And what will you secretly feel? You will be shamed and all through me, said the lady. And she wept bitterly, and her face was wet and blubbered and even more hideous. Lady, if I can guard you, be very sure I can also guard myself, Gawain said, glowering around at the other knights with his fighting face on him. Now, lady, come with me back to the castle, for this very evening is our wedding to be celebrated. To which Dame Ragnell replied, with tears falling from her one eye, Truly, Sir Gawain, though it is a thing hard to believe, you shall not regret this wedding. Word ran ahead of them from the city gates, and the people came flocking out to see Sir Gawain and his bride go by. All were horrified beyond even their expectations. That evening, the wedding took place in the chapel. At last, the forced festivities came to a close, and it was time for the newlyweds to go to the wedding chamber. There, Gawain flung himself into a deeply cushioned chair beside the fire and sat, gazing into the flames, not looking to see where his bride might be. A sudden drought drove the candle flame sideways, and the embroidered creatures on the wall stirred as though on the edge of life, and some were very far off, as though from the heart of the enchanted forest he fancied he heard the faintest echo of a horn. There was a faint movement at the foot of the bed, and the silken rustle of a woman's skirt, and a low, sweet voice said, Gawain, my lord and love, have you no word for me? Can you not even bear to look my way? Gawain forced himself to turn his head and look and then sprang up in amazement, for there between the candle scones stood the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. Lady, he said at half-breath, not sure whether he was awake or dreaming, who are you? Where is my wife, the Lady Ragnell? I am your wife, the Lady Ragnall, said she, whom you found between the oak and holly tree and wedded this night in settlement of your king's debt and maybe a little in kindness. But I do not understand, stammered Gawain. You are so changed. Yes, said the maiden. I am changed, am I not? I was under an enchantment, and as yet I am only partly freed from it. But now, for a little while, I may be with you in my true seeming. Is my lord content with his bride? She came a little toward him, and he reached out and caught her into his arms. 
content. Oh, my most dear love, I am the happiest man in all the world. For I thought to save the honor of the king, my uncle, and I have gained my heart's desire. And yet from the first moment I felt something of you reach out to me and something of me reach back and answer. In a little, the lady brought her hands down and set them against his breast and gently held them off. Listen, she said, for now a hard choice lies before you. I told you that as yet I am only partly free from the enchantment that binds me. Because you have taken me for your wife, it is half broken, but no more than half broken. Dame Ragnell explained that she was now able to appear in her natural form but half of each day, and Gawain must choose whether he wanted her to be fair by day and foul by night, or fair by night and foul by day. <laughs> that is a hard choice indeed, said Gawain. <laughs> Think, said the Lady Ragnell. After much back and forth, Gawain finally said, Whichever way it is, it is you who must endure the most suffering. And being a woman, I am thinking that you have more wisdom in such things than I. Make the choice yourself, dear love, and whichever way you choose, I shall be content. Then the Lady Ragnell bent her head into the hollow of his neck and wept and laughed together. O oh, Gawain, my dearest Lord, now, by seeing that it was for me to decide, by giving me my own way, by according me the very sovereignty that was the answer to the original riddle, you have broken the spell completely, and I am free of it to be my true self by day and by night. For seven years, Gawain and Ragnell knew great happiness together, and during all that time, Gawain was a gentler and kinder and more steadfast man than he had ever been before. But after seven years, she left. No one knew where she went, and something of Gawain went with her. That's it. <laughs> so sovereignty. In spiritual life, what is sovereignty? It seems that in this myth, the true meaning of sovereignty was the freedom to be fully who she was. That we are sovereign when we are free to totally live out what's called our Buddha nature, our true self. We are our own authority. We are the absolute ruler of our own domain in the sense that we have absolute freedom to touch our true inner nature. Buddha nature. It's the fullness of who we are, the natural goodness, the pure loving, the natural wakefulness of our being. So how we open to this sovereignty is to start with whatever is appearing, be it something ghostly and loathsome, be it something beautiful. We start right where we are. For most of us in the realms of intimacy, it's as I described before, there's a lot of shadow woven in. There's grasping and fearing. And that's where we start. In the myth, what presented, what was presented to Arthur and Gawain was the not beautiful. 
this, this, the not beautiful that the Buddha <coughs> described as a part of all of life, the contraction, the fear, the wanting. It's our shame, it's our preoccupations, it's our greed, it's our hatred, the not beautiful. So we are all under a spell at times. We all encounter what the appearances are when we're under a spell. What's our spell? That we forget who we are. We feel separate. We're in that kind of ignorance or delusion of feeling separate, feeling threatened, feeling incomplete. And out of that, we grasp and we fend off. That's the spell that we all go into. So the first step of practice and the first step in this myth is the recognition that the not beautiful, the spell, is a call for attention, that we must pay attention. It's not to be ignored, it's not to be wished away, nor is it evil, as Gawain saw. Just simply parts of our life asking for attention. It's been described as manure for Bodhi. You know, Bodhi's awakening, it's the grounds of awakening. We start with the spell. The Buddha called this right understanding. This is the first of the Eightfold Path, this right understanding that whatever wave of experience arises, whether we think of it as pain or pleasure, not beautiful or beautiful, that's the place to pay attention. We have an idea. We compartmentalize spiritual life and think that where we really want to pay attention is when we're on the top of the mountain or with the perfect lover or seeing a beautiful sight. We look for certain conditions and then we want to sit and meditate and tune in. It's every moment with whatever arises that willingness to be. So the first part of the myth is this kind of honoring that what arises deserves attention. Next in the myth, Sir Gawain agreed to be with what was not beautiful. So this is the acceptance. Not only are we paying attention, but there's a deep acceptance or agreement. And there's an awareness of that, this agreeing, this willingness to be with, to make room for and open to our experience. This means for us to look at our relationships, to see the dance we have, the ways we pull away or judge each other or judge ourselves, our blame, and to be willing to be with all the feelings that that dance brings up. Again, like Lady Ragnell, we're all in a trance, at least part of the time, and it's when we start paying attention to that that we can touch into the gold. So, Sir Gawain's first act of acceptance was to step out and, out of loyalty and commitment to his king, to his path, to say, yes, I'll do this. Now, this is one level of acceptance, and a lot of us do that. We say, okay, I'm going to accept dealing with the shadow, I'm going to go into therapy, or I'm going to go ahead and and start journaling, or I'm going to go to meditation class, or I'm going to, you know, have a talk. But that's, that's when we're intentional and resolved, but we haven't yet, in our cellular, bodily way, opened to the feelings. So there's two levels, you know, there's the kind of theoretical, yep, I'm going to face this. That's what he did at first. He said, I'm committing myself out of loyalty to my king. And then the next, and that deeper level of acceptance, was when he actually saw her 
and her appearance was hideous. It was not beautiful. The difficult parts of life. And even then, he stayed put. He let it come inside. He could hear her voice, and she could hear his. There was something that happened there where he stayed present for what was most difficult. The line in the myth, her gaze reached him like a cry for help. He sensed her vulnerability. So in this deeper level of acceptance, we're available to be touched. We can feel vulnerability. And so it is in embracing the shadow, the not beautiful, that we bring a quality of empathy, that we can feel, if it's our own shadow, we can feel our own vulnerability when we're willing to stay that present, when there's truly no pushing away, no judgment. We touch what's called the soft spot underneath. Rather than judging, avoiding, resisting, denying, acceptance means really seeing what is true, what is generating the not beautiful, the fear, the woundedness, the pain. Some of you might have heard of a book called Everyday Blessings, The Inner Work of Mindful Parenting. I don't know if any of you have. It's fairly new. John Kabat-Zinn and his wife, Myla Kabat-Zinn, wrote it together. It's a really lovely book. And it talks about parenting children in a mindful way. And yet it also is a whole metaphor for parenting our own inner child and parenting that which is difficult, that which is shadowy, that which is not beautiful. Let me just read you a little bit from it. Being empathic in the face of rejection requires us to not let our own hurt feelings get in the way of seeing the pain our child may be feeling. In some sense, our children have to feel us holding on to them no matter what repugnant to our mind spells come over them, no matter what dark disguises they try on. This comes out of a commitment to be appropriately present for them no matter what, to let them know that they are not alone, that we have not lost sight of who they are and what they mean to us. I think that's a very beautiful way of describing how we possibly can be with our children, with each other, and learn to be with our own inner self the parts of us that act out in what we think are ugly ways. If we can sense that, and that doesn't mean indulge or act out more than we already are, but sense that and stay with ourselves with that commitment to seeing what's underneath, to seeing under the not beautiful, under the one caught in the spells, to the universal energy of who we are. It's that commitment to stay with it that starts to free us up, to not lose sight of who we are. This is the heart of upholding sovereignty within and for others. Sovereignty is that experience of staying connected and true to our nature. And when we can mirror that for others, our keep in our sights who we really are, we're honoring sovereignty. Not to lose sight of our Buddha nature. And it takes a willingness to see beneath the surface with ourselves when we're needy, our grasping, to really see it's our need to be close, to feel connection. 
when we're judgmental, when we're mean, to see our fear underneath. In the moment that we can see the longing and the fear, we let go of the reactivity and there's a lot more natural tenderness. (coughs) Seeing the vulnerability is actually seeing into our hearts, seeing into bodhicitta. An important question, if you think about it, is what, as children, did we really most want from our parents? Just to consider that. What did you most want? There are many different adjectives we come up with, I think, to be loved and accepted. But in a way, one that's, very, that's quite inclusive is really that we're seen that we're truly understood and what is seen is loved. We intuit our goodness. We intuit our divinity. We intuit our love. And we forget. So much of our path and our practice is about remembering, reconnecting to what we know is there underneath. This is called a story that could be true. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name and somewhere in the world your father is lost and needs you but you are far away. He can never find how true you are, how ready. When the great wind comes and the robberies of the rain, you stand in the corner shivering. The people who go by, you wonder at their calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give, no matter how dark and cold the world around you is, maybe I'm a king. Isn't that the dream and the fantasy and in some way the intuition? the specialness, the beauty, the divinity. We all have that in some way, in a deep psychic or mythologic way. We forget. So our path is to recognize our own sovereignty, to feel empowered, to connect with our natural being, with our Buddha nature, and our true friends and healers and teachers mirror that for us the most liberating and awakening path for us is to be in a spell, to be caught, to be caught in the shadow. And then in the midst of that, in the midst of being possessed by either neediness or greediness or shame or fear or avoidance, rather than compounding it, we stop. And we bring some quality of care and presence to the fact that it's happening. We bring that same willingness that Sir Gawain brought to our own inner struggle to see the not beautiful and be with ourselves in a new and fresh and tender way. We soften to ourselves. We agree to engage, to love what arises. So Sir Gawain gave sovereignty, allowed sovereignty, to Lady Ragnall in two ways. And the first was 
by accepting her, by accepting to marry her. And the second was by seeing so deeply her beauty and trusting so much that he had her make the decision. He bowed to her. He honored her. And that's what we can learn to do to ourselves. You know, in our culture, the word bowing or the concept of bowing is easily considered unfamiliar and strange. I know for myself, when I first lived in an ashram community, I felt that bowing meant that in some way you were belittling or demeaning yourself to something big and different and glorious that was above and beyond. And after a number of years, um, you know, more and more would just practice whether it was bowing to statues or bowing to what were considered sacred writings or books or bowing to other people or just bowing to my ideas of things, I started sensing this power that comes. We have a deep river of devotion in us that honors, appreciates, and senses the sacred. And we don't allow ourselves to open to it. And yet there's an enormous amount of beauty and pleasure and joy in just a simple act of truly bowing and honoring. And what we are honoring is the Buddha nature of all beings, our own all beings. It's a beautiful pathway. So whether we bow formally, as in bowing our heads, touching the floor, are our hearts in some way have that acknowledgement of the sacred and the divine around us, it's our path to freedom, to bow. It's a way of respecting whatever arises in moment-to-moment mindfulness. What we're doing is really honoring whatever appears, whatever presents itself. So mindfulness meditation The moment-to-moment practice of agreeing to our experience of bowing is really a practice of being intimate with whatever is there. Every moment that we bring caring presence to what arises, we loosen the trance. We begin to free up that spell that we're in, the spell that tells us that we're separate and that our nature, our true nature, is not available we start to free ourselves from that spell. So enough words for now. Let's um, take a few moments and do a guided meditation. Just explore this a bit, and then we'll close for the evening. Um, Please stretch your legs if you've been sitting still and would like to. you do resume sitting, sit in a way that's relaxed and take a few full breaths. And let there be some softening as you connect with your experience of right now. Again, without any judgment, just noticing your mood, what your heart feels like. relaxing, and reflecting now on where in your life you feel that you get stuck 
in the shadow lover. Where in your life you either get find yourself addicted or attached to someone and afraid of rejection, trying to control things, judgmental. For some, just simply feeling inadequate in a relationship, judging a lot, feeling guilty or shameful in how you behave. For others, it's feeling angry and blaming another. That's another part of the shadow. And then for others, in the depressed or flat or shut down space, just just noticing for yourself. And if there's a lot of them, just choosing something you'd like to focus on, where the spell has taken you, has possessed you in some way. And let yourself feel the feelings of that shadow part, of that spell, aware of the reactivities that surround it, the not liking it. In other words, the gestalt of the not beautiful, of where we're contracted around intimacy. See what's true and include what's asking for attention in this gestalt. Sense the vulnerability within yourself that's there, that under and within and contained in the shadow, the fear, the longing, As Sir Gawain recognized in Lady Ragnell that deep vulnerability, see it within your own being. Sensing it and allowing yourself to bring a caring presence to that in a very simple way, honoring what's arising, offering your care. For some, it's in the form of perhaps a light touching of the heart in this way, just offering kinesthetically some tenderness. For others, perhaps, just sending the message in, I care about this suffering. I see the suffering. Bearing witness with care, with immediacy, just seeing what's true. Accepting, making room for what's there. Letting your heart soften to it. To honor, to bow to the vulnerability as an expression of our basic life force, the longing to love and be loved, our own awakening heart, the sense that you can bow to this all.
to sense your own sovereignty, that you are this awakening heart that cares. You are this awareness, this presence. We bow to the vulnerability. We bow to the Buddha nature that's within us and all beings. And then with the softness and openness of awareness and heart, take some time now to bring to mind another being in your life. It doesn't have to be the person that you might have brought in, that might have been part of your drama, but it could be. Bring to mind another being that you know is struggling in a relational way. that you'd like to bring your heart and your healing to. In the same way that you bore witness to and saw your own vulnerability, do you see their struggle? Sense their feelings of being stuck. the pain, the contraction. The resistances. The grasping. And underneath that, the fear and the longing. The soft spot. Sense their experience the miracle of seeing through another's eyes, really feeling their hearts. What's it like to be stuck, to be caught in that spill, the vulnerability that's underneath? And to take these moments to bring your care, your heart, your compassion to that vulnerability. I care about your suffering. Just that phrase in the traditional practice of cultivating compassion, to see suffering, to offer our care. To sense their longing to love and be loved, to bow to their natural goodness, to their awakening heart. and then opening the attention to bring others to mind in a relaxed way, sensing in each both the vulnerability and the loving heart that longs to awaken and be free. We each have this Buddha nature. We each struggle with our conditioning, each of us. feeling our compassion and our sense of honoring both.
Rumi writes, The minute I heard my first love story, I started looking for you, not knowing how blind that was. Lovers don't finally meet somewhere. They're in each other all along. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.